Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> And welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Um, we just recently passed a milestone, Sid, and this was intended to mark that milestone, uh, this this particular episode. That's a true. celebration of mm-hmm. Sawbones. Yes. So it's a week late. It's a week late. But it's a celebration nonetheless. 300 episodes. That's right. That's a long time, Sid. I You're know. You're making the show for a grip. It's scary because we've done this many episodes and there's, you know, about the failings of medical science throughout history. And there's, I have no shortage of still, ones to still Still do. not fixed. No. We didn't fix the whole thing. No. I thought in 200 episodes we could fix the whole thing. Certainly 300 as an outlier. But we've, like. We really have done a lot of mess ups and we just keep doing them. Um, so what we're going to do this week is a question and answer episode. I'm going to ask your questions to Sydney mm-hmm. and uh, she will answer them as, as best she can. And maybe I'll be able to help, too, with my own sort of uh, insights. Yeah, sure. Here's her sure. first question is this. So I have no idea if this is weird or why it happens. I'm a mother of two children. I breastfed both of them, but they're old enough now that happened several years ago. Sometimes in the shower, I notice yellowish deposits of buildup in my nipples. I call them boob crumbs and sometimes try to get them out. Well, that's... uh, um, Does every person with (laughs) breasts deal with this? Am I... Is it only after breastfeeding? Am I just super, super gross? And that's from Ronnie. Uh... Ronnie, I wanted, I'm so glad you asked this question and I wanted to address it because it occurred to me that this is one of those things that I have found, and I mean, this can be true of all bodies, that there's stuff that they don't tell you about that will happen to you throughout your life. Some of it is state dependent. It might be because you You're become in pregnant. Ohio and something <laughs> bad happens. And oh yeah, don't. Hey, listen. Uh, don't get me started on Ohio right now, but uh, it's just the driving folks. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Come over to West Virginia and drive like that. Come on. Well, and their, their laws, the the way they legislate. Yeah. But like the bodies the, of people with uteruses and the driving that. and the driving. That. Anyway, uh, this is one of those things that they don't warn you about, but that is definitely true and common. And you are not alone. You're not gross in any way. Uh so there are something that, that can form. There are these things that form around the areola of the breasts. Called, we call them Montgomery tubercles. And they're just these, usually these little like brownish or kind of reddish bumps around the areola. And it, they're actually one of the first 
changes that occur in a body when you become pregnant. Hmm. So you can look for those and go, hey. Hey, I didn't know I was pregnant. Well, so and now. They're, they're, they can pop up. There are other associations for the, for the most part. These are something that happen when you're pregnant. And they usually go away, but of course, breastfeeding, it has to do with hormonal changes. So breastfeeding can continue them. They can still be there. And these little tubercles can become clogged. They're really just sort of like oil glands, like like they, they secrete like oily substances. Mm-hmm. And they can, they're helping to like keep everything soft and keep everything from getting cracked during breastfeeding and all that. And um, that, you know, they're just, they're supposed to be there. They're normal. It's mm-hmm. totally normal. But they can become clogged with some of that waxy, oily substance. And then you can, if you try, you can squeeze out of them a little, looks like a little plug of something yellow or white. Oh, and it's oh. just like, a, it's not infection. I mean, I'm not going to say it's not impossible that somebody is, I mean, these can get infected. But right. like, this can happen without an infection. And uh, and it, it, I guess it does kind of look like a little crumb. Huh. Okay. Well, I have, I, I, I share this with you as someone who is still breastfeeding. Yes, this is normal. Totally happens. Uh, best advice though, is actually don't, don't try to squeeze them or pick at them or get anything out of them. They're fine. They're normal. There's nothing wrong with them. And if you pick at them, you do run the risk of then introducing infection. Exactly. But you're not gross. This is normal. Is there really a nerve that runs straight from your feet to your throat so that if you walk on cold tile, you'll get sick? And if you drink uh, cold or icy beverages, you will get sick. And that's from Erica. From Erica, yes. Uh, I thought this was an interesting question because there were actually several that were along these same lines. Is this a folklore thing? I have not heard this before. I've heard like wear a hat to keep your your entire body warm because you lose heat through your head. This is, I think this is more rooted, my guess would be, because this was not the only question along these lines that I received, kind of about nerves connecting from your feet to different places in your body. Mm-hmm. And it's I, the whole basis of reflexology. Well, that's why I wonder if that's not where some of this stuff comes from, mm-hmm. is from the, the belief that everything in your body connects to a point on your foot and that by doing things to your foot, you can fix various illnesses throughout your body. This is not so. Ah. Uh, it'd be nice. It'd be very convenient, but it's not true. But there is, that's not, I think it's, it's interesting because it, it kind of reflects, it's cool to talk about how nerves work and how, and the things they can do. Um, there are nerves that move things. There are nerves that help you feel things. There are nerves that control your heartbeat. So nerves do all different sorts of things. They send messages all different directions in your body to help control everything we do but illness does not travel along them in this way you know it's not like you could first of all being cold doesn't make you sick that's a common common myth go outside with wet hair get cold whatever that you'll get sick no being cold does not make you sick and uh and you can't have like an illness travel along a nerve path that way like you mm-hmm. step in a puddle they just send signals right mm-hmm. they send signals so uh, it, it is it is neat. There are cool nerves that can do a lot of different things. Like I like to mention the vagus nerve, which is a big nerve that runs from your medulla oblongata, part of your brainstem. Mm-hmm. And it goes all the way down to innervate everything from your speech to your heartbeat to sweating. It has nerve endings that even reach your colon. So like it is a big nerve that does a bunch of different cool stuff. Not your feet, but still. So. Nerves are cool and interesting, but they do not do that. Uh, my mom was a nurse, wound, ostomy, hospice. What's ostomy? 
Uh, so if you have like, a, have you heard of a colostomy? This is not the question. That would be wild if the question was, what does my mom do? Have you heard of like a colostomy yeah. bag that someone might have? So an ostomy would be like an opening, especially an intentionally made opening somewhere in the abdominal wall to allow, you know, stool contents to exit that way as opposed to the rectum. It's like the care of those sorts of openings. An ostomy is an opening like that. It's not always in the colon. That's why it's a colostomy. There are ileostomies. But an o- but the care for those kinds of openings would ostomy care. Anyway, uh, Julie, who asked this question, uh, Julie's mom was a nurse, and she used to tell me and my sister, nose bacteria is super potent, and if you pick your nose and then s- touch, say, your eyes or an open cut, you might get a really bad infection. Uh, I think this now is there's a, I, there is not a question here from Julie. So I just I assume it's like call my mom on her bull crap. Yeah, it was uh, there was more to the email. I was kind of oh, okay. I, I, <laughs> I cut it down. But that was basically that. Is this true? Or was my mom just trying to get us not to pick our nose? Narc on my mom, basically. Uh, I assume that your mom is probably referencing MRSA, MRSA, which is short for methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus which is a strain of staph bacteria that is very resistant to a lot of antibiotics. And so it is more dangerous in the sense that it's harder to treat, not necessarily in any other. It's a, we always call it like a super bug. It doesn't have like superpowers. It's just super. Well, it's nine vulnerable. Other, that's a, a well, sort of not, power. No, it's vulnerable. There are things we can still use. I said nine. <laughs> but, uh, MRSA tends to colonize your nose. MRSA tends, if you carry it, you carry it around inside your nostrils. So while it, that doesn't necessarily make that act, like picking your nose and rubbing it in your eye, necessarily more dangerous than like, I don't know, putting your finger in your butt and rubbing it in your eye, which also would be wild. Would, well, would also introduce bacteria that you don't want in your eye. I, I would I wonder. I mean, it is I guess it would be considered a, an especially potent bacteria. So like your mom's right. If you have MRSA in your nose, you don't want that getting into cuts or any kind of holes or openings anywhere else in your body. But uh, but I would say generally speaking, like try to wash your hands and especially after you've stuck them in any orifice. Uh, it's a general rule of thumb. <clears throat> mouth too. Mouth. Our, our mouths are filthy. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be an ironic intro in this next question, considering what you just said. Hello, my comforting podcasting parental figures. I have a somewhat medical question. I'm 23 and have been scared of doctors for a long time. I've been in the urgent care a few times in college, but outside of that, I haven't gotten a checkup since I was 17. I recently made an appointment with my new primary care doctor, and I have about a month till my appointment. My question is, what do I even do during this appointment? Share every health concern I've had for six years? Tell her I just want to check up? I've never had to navigate being in a doctor's office without a parent, and I'm nervous that I won't say the right things. Do you have any guidance? That's from Maria. I think that's an excellent question, because you are so not alone with this fear. I see this very commonly. Um, I try to, when I see patients who are in their like adolescent or teenage years, always have the opportunity, if everybody is okay with it, to have the parent or guardian step out of the room. Um, in part, it's we always say that that's so that like if there's something private that you want to discuss, we can do it. But it's also to start practicing that interaction of you and your doctor without anybody else present. I think it's it's just useful for that. Oftentimes, we won't have anything private, so to speak, right. to discuss. It's really just... So you just stand in silence for three minutes. No, I just ask some, you know, is there anything else you want to talk about? You know, I'm always here. And then if they don't have any questions, I usually will take this opportunity to kind of address this exact issue. 
eventually you go to the doctor alone or you can. And I don't. <laughs> Sydney always comes with me. So I have no experience in this category. Uh, but when you do, it, it can be very intimidating to know, like, what is the what are the rules okay. uh, here? Here is the the main point to take home is that your doctor is there to help you. And there is no rule as to what you are supposed to say or ask or do. I have patients who come in who have millions of questions and concerns and lists of things that they want to talk about from the last six years, maybe. And then I have other patients who come in and are really more like, I don't know, I'm supposed to go to a doctor. So I came. You tell me. And that's fine, too. We are we are trained to handle all these situations we should be and we should be good at helping you have the doctor's appointment you need no matter what you come in prepared to do or say i would say for an initial checkup with a primary care doctor as a primary care doctor my goal is to get a handle on one if you do have an urgent issue right now that you need addressed well that's not really the point of a checkup of course I want to address that. Sure. I mean, it's urgent. You need it taken care of. So if you do have something that needs addressed right now, I would say that right at the top. If you don't, they're going to ask you a bajillion questions. They're going to want to know all about your history. They're going to want to know all about your family history, all about your behaviors and your habits, your worries, where you are in life, what you're doing, what your goals are. And then they're probably going to want to do at least a bit of a physical exam, like a general checkup kind of thing. Um, just the major stuff that we check. And then they're also going to want to address some like preventive health things. You're this age because of this in your family history or your, you know, your gender. There are different things we might want to suggest tests you might want or vaccines you might need or whatever. So I would say bringing in a list of like six years of concerns, you probably can't address all that in one visit, nor would you want to. Nobody wants to be at the doctor's office for several hours. That doesn't sound fun. So I would prioritize the stuff that's most pressing. I would make sure your doctor's going to want to talk about preventive health stuff, and that's so important. So you want to make sure there's time for that. And then for your, these other concerns, I would say I have some other things I would like to talk about. If your doctor has more time, if the visit's not over, great. If not, they may say, hey, can we schedule a follow-up appointment to discuss some more of these things in more depth? And so we can follow up on some of the things we've addressed this time. I think I've always had a suspicion in the back of my head, or at least I did when I was younger. I don't think as much anymore, but this idea that and probably this is too much house and medical TV in general, but like this idea that I would say one weird thing, like one weird symptom and the doctor would like turn on their heels and be like, what did you say? <laughs> say it again. I just cracked this whole thing wide open. That is, uh, I, I'm not going to say that is absolutely never true, that there isn't something in a case that could be like the one piece of information that could be helpful. But the vast, vast majority of the time, it's about putting the picture of you as an individual human all together and trying to help uh, help you attain the best quality of life you possibly can. And that is not a one piece of information puzzle. That's a that's a whole human that we're we're working together to help you be your best you. And, you know, it, it's going to take more than one visit to get there. So I'd prioritize the really important to you right now stuff and then let your doctor take care of the stuff they're going to want to tell you is important, which is. Like your vaccines. Uh, I want to have kids in the future, but I'm worried about fertility. I only get my period three to four times a year. This has been the case since I got my period first. First got my period. I definitely don't want kids right now, but I'm wondering, should I see a doctor sooner rather than later? Should I be concerned about this? I'm 21 if that helps. Sarah, they them. 
So I, this is a good question, and I wanted to I wanted to address it briefly because we've talked about this somewhat on the show before, and I, I got a lot of tweets following it up because there was some concern that I'd left out some of the information, and I think that's fair. I would say, uh, Sarah, you should go and discuss this with a physician, and I don't say that to scare you. I'm not saying that there may be absolutely nothing abnormal, but... Most people who have periods have them more than three or four times a year. That That is a very uh, low frequency outside the range of what we think is the normal range. And so I usually when we hear that, we say, hey, yeah, why don't you make an appointment with your doctor, discuss it. They can ask you some more questions to find out if there's anything else going on, if there's any other, you know, mm-hmm. is it related to some other thing that you don't know about, some other diagnosis that hasn't been found yet um and then at the same time 21 is also the age that we recommend you go if you do uh have a cervix that you go and and have your first exam pap smear done so if you've never had that done before this would be a this would be a good time to do it but yes uh it it may be i don't say this to scare you it may be that everything is absolutely fine but that yes you should go if you are not having periods any more frequently than that you should go see a doctor and talk to him about it also we're a podcast so our advice is almost always going to be yes you should go see, yes, your, go doctor. see your doctor uh uh so i recently had a severe allergic reaction to a medication i was on and i had difficulty breathing i waited through multiple classes in school before going to the emergency room where they had to administer epinephrine to help the reaction. How bad an idea was it to wait till the end of the school day before I went to the hospital? I didn't have EpiPens, so it wasn't like there was anything I could do before I got there. Best, clueless in Cambridge. Um, can I try? I thought you might be able to answer this. Okay. Yes, it was bad. You should not. You should definitely. I listen. I don't I know a lot about the human body, folks, but I know of the important things that it does. Breathing is way up there. I, I thought you might be able to field this one, but I just wanted to reemphasize. And I bet you know this. I, I bet you know this deep in your heart already, Casey. You should have gone straight to the hospital. Yes. yes. Uh, an anaphylactic reaction can absolutely and often is life threatening. Uh, you should immediately seek medical attention. No, you're right. You didn't have an EpiPen, so you couldn't have fixed it. But that was even more reason why you should have left class. Right. You had an EpiPen and then just chill on it. I don't know. No, still go to the doctor. Use the EpiPen and then go afterwards because that's not always the end all of that that whole problem. Anyway, yes, if if you're having difficulty breathing, please go see a doctor. You do need immediate medical attention because things can go very bad very fast. You can go into shock and then you can die yeah so and that's one less listener for us so please think please next time you have trouble breathing please immediately go to a hospital i'm a textile designer and recently vendors have been bringing me textiles treated with shellfish chitin or chitosan the claim around it is that shellfish chitin is a natural anti-odor and antibacterial material a brief search shows it's sometimes using bandages or directly applied to wounds to encourage healing is this a real thing if yes how does it work alex this was a cool question because I'd never heard of this stuff. Okay. This was this was news to me. Fill me in. Uh, so, yes, chitosan is a material that is made from some sort of crustacean shell, the chitin that is in there, uh, and it is treated with something alkaline, so something like sodium hydroxide. And basically the, the material that results, there have been – it is used in multiple industries, so a lot of this goes well outside my medical – expertise it's used in other 
things that I have nothing to do with. Uh, but the thought is that it can be used to, in the lab, it's, it showed some antifungal properties mm-hmm. to inhibit the growth of, of certain other, you know, kinds of bacteria and stuff. And that also it helps stimulate, like, like in agriculture, it can help plants defend themselves against fungal and, and other kinds of invaders. Hmm. Um, so it's been used in agriculture. It's used in, in winemaking in some places. Oh. Um, <clears throat> again, it can help like prevent spoilage and things. Uh, and because of all this, there was some interest in it helping with like medical applications. And you can find this supplement, by the way, as I was of course. Googling about it, I ran into like completely unsurprising. Yes. Yeah, so you can, you can buy like the chitin capsules and things like that. Um, it has been investigated for wound healing and to stop bleeding, which is why it would be used in a bandage. That makes sense, right? If you could, like, impregnate the bandage with it. Sure. And then it would help. Unfortunately, the studies on that so far have not really shown a lot. It hasn't necessarily helped a whole bunch with wound healing or preventing scar formation or stopping bleeding. Um, there was some thought that it somehow... Uh, attracted more of like your cl- your own clotting factors and platelets and things to the wound. And that's how it did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's not, the research hasn't really borne out any of these things. It has been widely applied as sort of a cure-all um, for things like, from everything from weight loss to high cholesterol to high blood pressure to uh, Crohn's, um, Kidney disease, gum disease. I guess there are some people who like put it on their gums to like prevent cavities or to prevent gum disease, uh, all kinds of different things. None of these things have ever been uh, shown to be true from research. There are small studies, um, but so far, I think as a medical, it, its medical applications are right now extremely limited and perhaps someday we will find our non existent. But there's just no studies to say. I would not, if you find this in your pharmacy, which you can, to take, uh, it will be advertised to you as a, as a weight loss aid. And there are definitely studies that have shown it doesn't do that because there's always a lot of money to be made in that realm. Yeah. And so you'll find studies there and it, it doesn't help with that at all. Um, but I, I would not recommend this as something you need to add to your daily regimen. You ready for your next question, sister? Uh, I will be ready in just a moment, Justin, but first... Let's go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier then you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going to. Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool. Think of it as the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life 
and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. What are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box? Pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I'm eating filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're going to talk about pancakes smoothies they got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious and the meals you just eat and eat there's no prepping cooking or cleanup get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week you're going to get exactly what you want no surprises here uh and the meals i can say are delicious so what do you got to lose head on over to factormeals.com sawbones 50 and use code Sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code Sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash Sawbones50 to get 50% off. Okay, next question. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me. When I was younger, I would get a fever, and my mom would tell me that I could not have anything with dairy. Does the body react badly to dairy when it has a fever, or was this just my mom not wanting me to take, make myself chocolate milk while I was home sick? That's from Travis. This is a common myth i have found uh some some research uh led me to believe that your mom is not the only mom or dad or parent or anybody out there who's saying hey you can't have dairy when you have a fever uh the thought was that it would curdle in your stomach mm. and make you sick okay uh, i never heard that one but i don't know if you ever heard this my mom used to tell me not to have dairy when i had a cold because it would make more mucus yes this that feels right it feels true in your body. Neither of those things are true. Oh, man. It is. I mean, if you want to drink milk when you have a fever, when you have a cold, and milk is something you first... typically enjoy. Hey, as a non-medical can person, can I just say, don't. don't. If, if, you're, if you're it's vomiting like a lot. It I, makes it that worse. Well, I would just focus on things like water it's or just... some electrolyte-containing substance. Um, but no, there is no danger to dairy. I always wonder if these things don't have their roots in when we talk about like the four humors and humoral systems of mm, medicine yeah. where we you used to like eat and drink certain things or avoid certain things in order to balance your humors. You got to wonder if stuff like this isn't like our last remnants yeah. of those kinds of ideas. But no, it is you are, you can drink that milk when you got a fever. Uh, I got a paper cut last night while filling out a D&D character sheet. Nerd. Got him. And it hurt like heck. My question is. Why do paper cuts hurt so dang much? I've had bigger, deeper cuts from kitchen implements and a couple of accidents over the years, but nothing is quite so exquisitely agonizing as a tiny sliver of a paper cut. Hope this email finds you well. Love the show. That's from Jeeves in Scotland. 
I thought I wanted to answer this question for two reasons. One, it is a good question. And two, I, I like the use of exquisitely, exquisitely. agonized because you made fun of me when I said that a pain was exquisite. Mm hmm. I know, like your Alucard from Symphony of the Night. But it is used. Yes. It, is, it is not just me. Me and Jeeves, we both use it. I would, I, you know, I don't, I was thinking about this because I would say this is true. I have, I have cut myself with knives and I've gotten paper cuts and I do feel like paper cuts are a special kind of pain. Why? Part of it I would say is location. I would say that's a big, that's a big thing. Most paper cuts we tend to get on our fingers, right? right. And your fingertips have are especially sensitive you know we have different densities of sensory nerves in different parts of our body and our fingertips in particular need to have a lot of good sensory function because they do all of our stuff for us you don't need to have uh, as fine sensory perception in like your elbow as you do in your fingertips so i would say a big part of it is just location we tend mm. to get paper cuts on our fingertips and that is a very sensitive spot mm. so of course, it's going to hurt a lot more. Especially using them if you a like lot. cut your arm. You're, it's a very active part of your body that's touching a lot of different stuff and, mm -hmm. and interacting with a lot of different stuff. So I imagine it's like very front of mind as a result. I thought this was an interesting uh, way to also bring up the little tip that I always tell people if you have to uh, ever do stick, stick your fingers with like um, if you have to do glucose checks for diabetes or anything like that or any it came up, Justin, when you did the uh, the blood test yeah. for Everly Well. Yeah. I always recommend to try to use kind of the edge, the side of your fingertip as opposed to the very tip tip of your finger. Yeah. If you're going to get a paper cut, that's supposed to get it. Uh, I'm so troubled that the answer to this question is not just a no. I can't make heads or tails of what you've written here, but you didn't write no. <laughs> if I stick my finger too far up my nose, could I actually touch my brain or is that just a myth, Ryan? First of all, Ryan, please do not attempt this uh, yeah, or yeah, anyone yeah. else. Not just Ryan. This is okay. this is for all listeners. Please don't try this. You can't. Okay, you can't just stick your finger just up your nose and no, touch your brain. And then if no. you want to add some color, okay, thank you. No, but I did want to add some color because I, where I, whenever I hear something like this, I try to think, well, where did that idea come from? Okay, in above your nasal passages, the the part of your skull that's at the top there that like above that gets to the brain part, you know, like mm -hmm. inside the skull part, there's the brain part right? Uh, that you don't want to touch. There Just is can't be clear <laughs> enough about that, folks. There is a bone, the ethmoid bone. And within the ethmoid bone, there is this area called the cribriform plate. And it is like, if you look at it, you can Google this. It's a piece of bone that has a bunch of little like perforations in it teeny teeny like you can't stick a finger through them perforations teeny teeny because they allow for the passage of nerves okay okay but there is that there is a pathway your finger could not fit through it but, but there is a, a connection route. between the top of the inside of your nose and your brain teeny teeny little perforations in that cribriform plate through which nerves pass but that is why if you get a certain kind of skull fracture and like you damage that area you can have cerebrospinal fluid leak from your nose, which is bad. And like, if that so happens, bad. you immediately need to go seek medical attention. Yeah, but, um, don't finish your classes first. So that that is probably where that comes from. But no, it, it I, you could not just jam your finger up there and touch brain. The recommendation for length of time between pregnancies is at least one year. I've also seen eighteen months for pregnancies that end in a C-section. What's the medical reasoning behind these wait times? And that's from Annie. From Annie. Uh, the the reason, this is a good question. The reason is 
they've just done some more studies on this actually last year. Some new some new reports came out because we always used to say 18 months or greater. More recently, we've said 12 months is probably sufficient. What we find is that the if you wait less than 12 months between pregnancies, we see a higher rate of things like premature labor, a higher rate of things like um, uh, m- problems with the pregnant person as well as the baby. A much higher uh, incidence of having two babies at once is a huge <laughs> issue, I think. That would that, be my That was not in the study, issue. but yes. Yes, if Dr. Justin is, is in the study. Uh, mortality goes up for both the pregnant person and the baby if you wait less than 12 months between pregnancy. Why is this the case? It's, it's interesting. We're still not 100% certain of all the reasons why. Part of it kind of feels like, like it makes sense. Like it, a pregnancy is an incredibly taxing state on the human body. And you need a lot of time to recover so, from yeah. it. Uh, having recovered from two, I can tell you, I, I, do, I did not feel physically ready after less than a year, certainly after more than a year. Uh, but you, you need time for your body to recover and heal from everything that it's been through. And then there's also some thoughts that maybe it has something to do with stores of things like iron and folate mm. are, de- are very depleted by pregnancy. And it takes you, your body quite a while to rebuild those kinds of stores. Um, but the current recommendation is that at least 12 months between pregnancies. And, and that's why it's really for safety. It's not, it's not, there's, there's always that, is it doctors overreaching? No, it's for safety of the pregnant person and safety of the baby. Huh. Uh, I have a bump on my head and my family thought it might be skin cancer. So when I went for my yearly checkup, I had my physician, I asked my physician about it. He looked over for a couple seconds and without doing any tests, he said it was fine. How can a doctor tell if a little nodule on my forehead is cancerous or not just by looking at it? There are two questions here, by the way. Okay. This is a double? Yeah. Okay. Let me take the first one first. Okay. Okay. This is from Joe. And then we'll get to Joe's second. Joe's okay. second brought up a funny thing that I okay. want to talk about. Uh, I, I thought this was important to address because we we are guilty in the medical profession of not always explaining, of not always showing our work. Mm-hmm. If it's Especially if it's something that we know immediately, oh, it's this, it's fine, whatever, and we want to move on to what we think is the more important or pressing issue, which isn't necessarily what was the more important or pressing issue to you, which is always part of that that's that art of medicine where you should be able to make sure you're both on the same page as to your priorities um there there are a lot of different features we learn all of this in school of things that are benign and things that maybe aren't benign and things that definitely are dangerous are not benign and very often it's a clinical exam if we biopsied every bump we would all be getting biopsies constantly, right? Because right. we're all going to get little weird bumps on our skin from time to time. So there are a number of features that we look at, and, and I could get in. It, it would depend on exactly what it looked like for me to tell you why. But a lot of the time, they're just little growths of like fibrous tissue or, or fatty tissue or things that we can tell just from looking and touching. It's not dangerous. What exactly is it? Well, it's probably this. I wouldn't know unless I biopsied it, but it would be unnecessary because I can tell you it's not. We'll keep an eye on it. If you see any of these changes and feel free to always ask that. Okay, sure. well, why didn't you think it was a problem and what would tell you it was a problem? Because then you can. I then always, you're the doctor. Well, no, then you can look at it too. It's always good. Change over time is always one of the features that we look at. So um, that's probably, it, it's always a good idea for us to explain our rationale. Uh, it helps give people better 
autonomy, better agency over their own bodies. Um, but never be afraid to ask that question. That's right. Uh, I here's Joe's other question. I occasionally sleep a little funny and wake up with one of my arms totally dead because I presume I slept on a nerve wrong. I shake it off and after a few minutes it's fine again. But I'm apparently sleeping on a punched nerve for upwards of eight pinch nerve, sorry, mm-hmm. for upwards of eight hours. Would this cause permanent harm or is it just something that happens sometimes? So I like this question because it brought up one of the things I remember from medical school learning and, and thinking was very funny, which is Saturday night palsy. It's also been referred to as honeymoon palsy. So we all know that you can accidentally compress a nerve when you're sitting in a certain position or laying in a certain position and something will fall asleep, right? Mm-hmm. We've all had the feeling of our arm falling asleep or our hand falling asleep or our foot or whatever. Um, and that's all it is. You were just, you were compressing a nerve, something in your positioning. And when you relieve pressure on that nerve, it will, the feeling will come back and you get all that pins and needles and nobody likes that, but it, but it resolves pretty quickly. If you are to hold that position for many, many, many hours, it doesn't resolve right away. Mm-hmm. It will go away. You will get your sensation back and your function back in that arm or leg or whatever. But it can take a lot longer. And the the thing we were taught in medical school is is a radial neuropathy. So compressing the radial nerve, which is a nerve in your arm. Mm-hmm. And all, all, all these nerves pass through your armpit in this big bundle called the brachial plexus. A bunch of nerves go through there. So what they taught us is like... The classic is somebody goes out and drinks a whole bunch of alcohol and then passes out over the back of a chair, like with their arm hanging over the chair with their armpit right on the back. Mm -hmm. And it compresses the radial nerve. And then the next morning you wake up and you can't move your arm. Hmm. And it was and it's really it's the prolonged compression. So that's why they use the example of somebody who maybe has been drinking too much is that perhaps they then pass out and sleep a lot longer than they would have otherwise. But these do go away, but it is interesting because uh, I have seen cases where it took several weeks Wow, for it to resolve. Holy crap. So, it's, it's but, a, but not serious damage. No, no. It, it, the, the, all the damage went away and the arm was perfectly functional, but it sucks while it's resolving. Here's one from Mike. Uh, our last question of the episode. Being a new parent, as far as, as I am right now, can be crazy stressful and scary one of my biggest fears so far has been around vaccines everyone's favorite topic the first big set according to cdc occurs at two months why is it that long of a wait are vaccines unquestionably the most life-saving invention ever created on this virus and bacteria-filled planet why do we not vaccinate at birth and that's from mike okay do you want to hear my theory and you can tell me how right or wrong i am okay uh my theory is that at a very young age Enough of the mother's blood and antibodies is still in the baby that it's okay. That's my theory. That's that is partially right. That is part. You are partially right. I'm partially proud. That is good. Yes. Part. So this is a great question. I love to talk about vaccines anytime we get the opportunity. The reason that we have our vaccine schedule the way we do, the reason that we have certain vaccines at certain ages, is because of one. That is when we are likely to encounter or before I should say we are likely to encounter those diseases, right? Cause we want to mm-hmm. get vaccinated before the age when most people would get it. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't do any good to vaccinate you for diphtheria when you're 20 because diphtheria was historically a problem, much more common in children. So we want to get the diphtheria vaccination in there early. Um, but the other thing is we have to make sure that your body's going to generate an immune response. Mm. And so, 
a lot of vaccines are the reason we get them at that age is because we know that's the earliest our body is going to generate the appropriate immune response to the vaccine. Otherwise, it's useless, right? Right. If you gave somebody a vaccine and their body wasn't able to create the antibodies that they need to, Mm -hmm. then it didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. This is also why boosters exist, because we found that you can create some of an antibody response, but you need those extra shots to continue your antibody creation and formation so that you are fully protected against the disease. Um, so that's that's part of why we wait till two months is because we want to make sure that that's the earliest we know that your body's going to generate an immune response. We do feel that there is some protection. We know there is some protection that is passed along from the pregnant person to the newborn. Hmm. So there are antibodies that exist. Um, and that's good. And also that's part of why the vaccines maybe aren't as effective because if you did get antibodies... And those antibodies start attacking something like a measles vaccine, for instance, if we gave you a measles vaccine at birth, then it wouldn't work. Hmm. We wouldn't, you wouldn't get the immune response. Okay. And those antibodies that you get from the person who carried you, they go away. They're just short lived. They're not there forever. So you need those vaccines. We know that this is the time where they are that, that combination of most effective and earliest we can get it to you before you will be exposed, likely be exposed. Right. Um, and that's why we can't give them all at birth. It'd be great if we could. It'd be oh, great yeah. if they would all work right at birth. We would we would do that. Um, but they're all scheduled to be the earliest possible time that they're going to work and protect you. And that is also why it is so important that you stick to that vaccine schedule. I always see questions about alternate vaccine schedules. And the thing is, if you space out vaccines, if you get them later, if you try to get fewer at a time where there's no evidence that any of that matters or is important or should be done. Right. I mean, you you don't need to do any of that. But if you do, you really run the risk of not getting the immune response in time for you to be exposed to that. And we have measles outbreaks. So, I, you know, I, I, applaud you for wanting to get the vaccines earlier <laughs> i'd be right there with you if we could have gotten them all at birth i would have taken both our kids in and gotten them all vaccinated. we got the whole bunch of them um, uh, in the delivery room but no no trust just stick with the vaccine schedule from the cdc and and you you cannot go wrong um and get your flu shots yeah there is no too late to get a flu shot that's right uh folks thank you so much for listening to our episode thank you for sticking by us for 300 discreet episodes uh we are so happy that you are here uh if you i'll tell you another uh uh thing that you can do if you want to support our show head on over uh to mcelroy mcelroy i mispronounced my own name that's where i'm at head on over to looks like it should be mcelroy thank you (laughs) mcelroymerch.com we've got some beautiful there's a, a sawbones ornament you can order. Um, we've got uh, a Sawbones T-shirt, our vaccines T-shirt that uh, supports uh, uh, the Immunization Action Coalition. Thank you, Sydney. You say it much better than I do. And a, a pin that does the same thing, a Provax pin. We've also got a shirt that I can't believe we haven't talked about, the Cure Alls Cure Nothing shirt. It's new. Uh, it's blue. And it's just right for you. So, hey. Thank you. I just hey. came up with that. I think it's so cool. Um, anyway, uh, go, go check that out. Um, and thank you for listening to our podcast. Oh, thank you, the taxpayers, for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thanks to you for listening. That's going to do it for this week. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head.
Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.